Hey everybody, this is Pastor Matt at Bethlehem. Thanks so much for listening to part two of our series called Navigating Culture. One thing to make you aware right off the bat is we usually record our Sunday messages live at Bethlehem on Sunday mornings. Um, We had some kinks with our sound equipment this past weekend. So what we're doing is we are recording this message online just for you. So this is just for our online audience. Um, So as as that um, unfolds, we just want to say thanks so much uh, for listening to these messages online. We hope that our online content is is, um, a blessing to you. And uh, one thing that we're passionate about is leading people to Jesus, and, and we want to be a church that everybody uh, can, can find Jesus at. And so thank you so much for checking us out online. I know We know some people uh, listen to these messages off of our website, BethlehemLakeville.org, and we also know that some um, follow us on iTunes uh, through our podcast there. And so however you found us, however you listen to us, thanks so much for being here, and we hope this time is a blessing. Like I said, we're in week two of a series called Navigating Culture, and the, the question that we're posing in this series is, is we're, we're posing the question, how should Christians react when culture celebrates something that God calls a sin? And one thing we acknowledge in this series is that um, the American culture is headed more and more away from the Christian worldview. Um, in fact, something we'll get into in week four of this series is we'll talk about how this country was actually established with the assumption that the people were self-governed with some Christian ethics. And John Adams himself, as he commented on the Bill of Rights, he said, this country cannot exist, that these rules cannot work um, with, with any other kind of worldview or any kind of system. And in week four, we'll talk more about how that exactly works out as we take a step forward in this uh, culture that is, is increasingly more and more stepping away from Christianity. Uh, but what we, what we want to do today is, is really tackle that main question. Like I said, the question is, how should we respond when culture celebrates something that God calls a sin? And one way to make that question a whole lot harder, for me and for you even, is to, to change one word, the word culture. Instead of saying, how does culture, how should we react to culture, ask the question, how should we react when somebody that we love celebrates something that God calls a sin? How should we, re- we react when a friend, when, when a family member starts to celebrate something and, and live in a lifestyle that celebrates what God calls a sin? Now, there are three basic ways that we can react, either when culture or when people we know celebrate things that God calls a sin. And the first way we could react simply by judging them. We judge their lifestyle. We judge their sin. Uh, we judge them left and right, and, and we kind of close the door because we've judged them, and that's what we think our job was. And so um, that's one way to react when culture celebrates something that God calls a sin. A second way to react is a lot of us would acknowledge that judging isn't really what we want to do, and so maybe we move to this middle territory called tolerating. We tolerate what they do, not because we agree with it, but because we think, well, who am I to judge? Who am I to step in and say that what they're doing is wrong? And so we passively tolerate. And, and some Christians even go a step further than that. They go to a third category where they actually approve of what culture or what their friend is doing as they celebrate something that God calls a sin. And I believe that the reason some Christians end up approving these things is just because they don't want to be accused of judging. None of us wants to be the judgmental Christian. 
Nobody wants to look at others and think that we can look down on them or have that, um, have that reputation among people. So some Christians go so far as to approve, and, and we try to come up with all sorts of excuses why maybe this person isn't so bad after all. But I think it all goes back to that word, judge. Um, in fact, Christians, non-Christians alike, we, we sometimes throw out this phrase where Jesus said, judge not, judge not, judge not lest ye be judged. And, and that phrase has been used so much and so often that it's been used as a catchphrase just to assume that we Neither Christians, nor non-Christians, nor anybody, nobody is supposed to judge somebody else. But what if Jesus didn't actually mean that? What if Jesus, when he said, do not judge lest ye be judged, what if he had something else in mind? In fact, as you look at that section where he says that it's a Sermon on the Mount, you can find it in Luke chapter 7. Jesus says, judge not lest ye be judged. As you look at the section, what, he, what he's saying is, if you're going to judge people there's something you need to know. If you're going to get into this business, you need to be aware of some things. And he used, he used an analogy. He said, the blind cannot lead the blind. Because here's the thing. If you're going to lead somebody, you can only lead them according to what you yourself can see. A teacher cannot teach more than he knows. Or the other way around, a student cannot learn more than what his teacher has taught, is, 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 is teaching him. You can only teach according to the level of understanding that you yourself have met. And the same applies to judging people. You can only judge others according to the standard that you yourself have met. So Jesus is basically saying, don't bother judging people if it's no good for them and if it's humiliating for you. Um, That said, Jesus actually gives us many examples in his life of when he did pass judgment on people. He passed judgment on the people who were setting up money money tables in the temple. He overturned those tables. He passed judgment on them. He even passed judgment on his own disciple, Peter, when uh, Peter said he didn't want Jesus to suffer and die. Jesus confronted him and said, get behind me, Satan. Uh, Jesus passed judgment on what Peter was trying to do. And uh, better than, than just throwing around those examples, what's really cool about the Bible is God doesn't just say be careful about judging, but he gets very specific in chapter 5 where God sets the precedent for how and whom he wants us to judge other people. Now, the thing you need to know about the, um, the first letter to the Corinthians, the, the city of Corinth was the modern, is like the modern-day Las Vegas. It was a sin city. It was at the intersection of two trade routes, and so a huge city developed. Anyone who went to Corinth could do whatever they wanted to do. And anything that happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. So that'll, come, that'll be important later. Uh, this was a city of lots of immorality and lots of bad things were going on there. So as, as Paul talks to them, as he, Paul writes this letter to the Christians who lived in Corinth, he started out chapter, um, chapters 1 through 4, um, especially chapter 4, what he, what he really emphasized to them was, hey, um, Christians in Corinth, you guys really need to listen to me. I'm an apostle. I was sent by Jesus. I have authority on these things. You need to listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. And the reason he really focused on that is because when he gets to chapter 5, that's when he tells them some things that are really unsettling. In fact, chapter 5, verse 1, it starts off with this wonderful word. It's one of my favorites. The, the word, if, if you just take it alone and translate it, it could be translated like this. Really? 
with, with a question mark and an exclamation mark at the end. Really? The way it's translated in the, in the NIV, if you have your Bible open, it says this. He said, it is actually, actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not even occur among pagans. So he's saying there's actually a report um, that, that something is going on in your congregation. And by the way, what you're doing is raising the level of immorality, raising the bar that to such an extent that even the pagans are being shamed and their cheeks are turning rosy over what you guys are doing. Uh, by the way, the word pagans, uh, sometimes when I hear pagan, I think, okay, there's these uh, top 1% of wicked people in the world who have their own little cult or group and they do some weird things. The, the Greek word for pagan there doesn't mean just some really wicked people. In fact, an acceptable way to translate pagan is simply culture. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not even occur among secular culture. What you're doing and what you're uh, tolerating is absolutely repulsive. And so what is it that they were doing? Well, he goes on in verse 1. He says, in your midst, this is what's uh, going on in your congregation. He says, a man has his father's wife. Apparently the situation was a man had entered a long-term sexual relationship with his stepmom. And that situation by itself is rather disturbing, and, and you'd think this isn't right, and even the, even the culture around them was saying this isn't right. But the, the fact that they had this going on in the congregation wasn't what upset Paul the most. Because as he goes on, there's something even worse. In verse 2, he goes on to say, and you are proud of this. You are proud He goes on, shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? I'm I'm not sure exactly why they were proud or what it looked like that they were proud. Maybe the, the, the church in Corinth just wanted to be the cool church in town. Maybe they wanted to send the message, hey, everybody, we're the cool church. We accept everybody. We don't care what you do. We're not gonna judge you. We will we'll tolerate you, we'll we'll accept you. Will approve of you no matter how you are. And, and, and the impression is that they weren't hiding this sin in their congregation, but they were using it as a commercial or as, or as an advertisement for the community around them. So Paul puts them to shame. Verse 2 again, he says, You are proud of this? Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Paul goes on to say, this is how you should have put him out of of your fellowship. Verse 3, he says, even though I'm not physically present, he's saying, look guys, I'm not even there. I I, I don't even see this thing face to face. He says, I am with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. And he goes on in verse 4, When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, and here's the important part, hand this man over to Satan 
so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his, and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Hand this man over to Satan. And that sounds so harsh and so cruel. I'm not ex- exactly 100% sure what it means or what it looked like for them to hand this man over to Satan. And I think that's a good thing because probably this last week I would have handed some people over to Satan who were driving kind of crazy around me. What does it mean to hand somebody over to Satan? Here's... The, the best explanation, and here's absolutely what we can say for certainty. The situation was Paul wanted the, this church, this congregation, he wanted them to gather together as a church to talk about God things. This was their sacred time to talk about God. And during this meeting, when the church gathered in the name of God, they were to have a conversation with this man who was sleeping with his stepmom. And the conversation would go like this. Basically, they would say, look, this is a church of people. This is a a, a gathering of people who follow Jesus. That's what this church is designed for. We recognize that Jesus is our Savior and we live for him. But then they communicated to this guy, look, the way you're living your life demonstrates that you do not belong to Jesus, but you belong to somebody else. You belong to Satan. And you belong to him not because we gave you to him, not because we decided that's where we want you. You belong to Satan because of what you have done. And at such a harsh preaching of, of the truth of the matter, the, the hope and the intent was not to, to abandon this guy and just kick him out of church and forget about him. The hope and the intent, as Paul said, is to destroy this sinful nature that would not let go of this sin so that Jesus could step in and heal him with forgiveness. Maybe they were thinking, but this is just one guy. This is just one sin. Can't we just put this guy in the corner? Okay, we'll stop making a commercial out of him. We'll take him off our promo video. Can we just leave him in the corner and not deal with this? Because this is going to get really awkward. And Paul goes on, verses 5 and 6. Paul said, your boasting is not good. Not good. Then he used an illustration that would have made perfect sense back then. He said, don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? On modern day terms, we would probably say, don't you know that one picture, one video can go viral? One picture, one video can either make or break a person's reputation. Um, similarly, that's, that's an illustration God uses of sin. One sin can destroy a person's reputation. One sin, if left there and if let to, to incubate, one sin can destroy a person's marriage. One sin can destroy a person's career. One sin can destroy a person's finances. One sin can destroy a person's health. There, there's all these illustrations of how if one sin is left unchecked, It can destroy a person and their reputation. And Paul said, God says, this is the same thing that's true in churches. If you permit one sin to fester, it will destroy your entire community. So then Paul goes on in verse 7, Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 
and we're going to get into this more in a little bit too, but just to look at that beautiful picture there. This is how they really are. You know, this church, yeah, they've got their troubles. Yeah, they've got this guy they need to, to get rid of and, and to preach some, some truth to pretty severely. But when Paul looks at them, he says, you are a new batch of dough. You have been freed from sin. And here's how I know it, Paul says, because Christ, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And here's how those two things go together. The yeast, the, the bread, getting rid of the yeast and all that stuff, that's, that's all very um, correlated to the Passover meal. And the tradition was they'd get rid of this yeast, they'd make unleavened bread, and then once all the yeast was gotten rid of, and once they had this unleavened bread, then and only then they could sacrifice the Passover lamb and have the full meal. So Paul says, look, the Passover lamb Jesus has been sacrificed. And because of that, I can tell you, your sin is gone. Your sin is forgiven. And that's the way that God addresses groups of sinners in things that we call church. We're going to see this more in a second, but this group of people, they were not perfect. They weren't kicking this guy out because this was not a place for sinners. They recognize that there is a time and a place that you absolutely must emphasize the truth out of grace. Because they loved this man so much, they absolutely had to emphasize the truth so that they could help him out. And, and, and Paul goes on, verse 8, Therefore let us keep this festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and of wickedness, but with bread without yeast. And here's the important part. He says, the bread of sincerity and truth. There is a time and a place to emphasize the truth to somebody because you love them. The, the big question is, whom can we do that for? Because I know that there's a lot of people in this world, and we start to wrestle with that tension. Well, how exactly do I take God's truth and express it in love to other people? And what does that process look like? The rest of this section here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it helps us understand not just how to do these things, but it also helps us to understand to whom. Whom can we judge and whom does God want us to emphasize the truth out of grace for? We're going to go really quickly here through the last few verses, then there's some important illustrations to make. Uh, verses 9 and 10, he says, Paul says, I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So he's summarizing here. He's like, look, the reason I wrote this is so that you would not associate with this sexually immoral guy. You need to kick him out. Uh, he goes on. He said, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, Paul says, in that case, you'd have to leave this world. So now, in a really important distinction, he starts to separate people inside the church from people outside the church. He says, you cannot disassociate yourself from all the people who are immoral in this world. And here's why. Verse 11, he says, but now I am writing that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother. You must not be a part of anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. With such a man do not even eat. And the thing about this, it's not just having a weakness 
towards sexual immorality or a weakness towards greed or any of those other things. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying if, if anyone calls himself a brother but then also identifies himself and, and is proud of and brags about one of these sins, he's not a true brother. And you need to kick him out. With such a man do not even eat. Uh, Paul summarizes in verse 12, he says, but what, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. And there's a very, very clear de- um, distinction here. When you, when you get to emphasize the truth with somebody, it must be only with those who have a foundation of grace, those inside the church. You and I have no right and we have no jurisdiction to impose this truth or to judge people on those who are outside. And, and here's why. It's real easy to, to illustrate. You see, I judge my children all the time because they are in my house and I am their father. I judge them based on what time they get up. I judge them based on um, what they wear. I, I make judgments based on what they eat. And, and I make judgments based on how they interact with each other. I make judgments based on homework. The list goes on and on. I make judgments about them because I love them and because I want to conform their behavior towards something which will be good for them. That's my job. That's my role as a parent. Now, what I can't do, I cannot step into your house or into my neighbor's house and start to make judgments about their children. I can't walk in and say, are you really sure you should be eating that? Or isn't it a little bit late to be up? Shouldn't you be in bed or, or you know, smelling their breath? Ooh, did you brush your teeth today? It's not my place to step into somebody else's house and make judgments about their children because I am not their father. Now, Paul makes that same thing true about the church too. You and I have no right, no jurisdiction to go out into the world and start to make judgments about people. You and I are called to emphasize truth out of love for those who are inside. But for those outside, we are to emphasize love because it's the truth in Christ. As we start to um, apply this stuff, there's some really neat things that we need to, to figure out here. Um, as we judge the church, not the world, there, there's some things we need to keep in mind. The first thing is this. If, if we had a church that judged itself, what would that church look like. So if, if we had a church that was genu- genuinely set up to, to, to uh, emphasize the truth when needed, out of love for one another, and if, if we kicked out people who were immoral, what kind of a church would you be left with? And some might say, well, you'd only have a church of one, because if you kick out everybody who's sinful, you'll be the only one left. And at that point, you should kick yourself out too. But here's the cool thing. When you look at this this congregation in Corinth, this church in Corinth, here's how Paul describes them. As as he goes on into chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, this is the way he describes this church. He he says, as as he goes on into chapter 6, he says, don't be be ignorant of this. He goes through a list of people who will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And in verse 9, this is how he starts. He says, neither the sexually immoral, and I'll pause there. Sexually immoral is simply people who are known for having sex with anybody that they want to. So he says, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, people 
who worship things other than God, nor adulterers, those are people who are unfaithful in their relationships, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders. And and those two terms, um, male prostitutes and homosexual offenders, they were very specific Greek words. Um, The first one refers to men who let other men do things to them. And the second term is the man who does things to another man. And so it's very specific. But Paul says, these people will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on. Uh, maybe, maybe as you read or hear about those few uh, th- words there, you might think that you're okay. But then he goes on in verses 10 and 11. He says, nor will thieves, nor the greedy, have you ever wanted something? Nor will drunkards, have you ever been drunk? nor slanderers, nor swindlers. None of those people will inherit the kingdom of God. And so you might think, well, this is just making a church of nobody then if you're going to kick all those people out. But then here's how Paul finishes that section. He says, you know all these things that I just listed? He says, that is what some of you were. Holy moly, this this church was full of people who were adulterers, people who were sexually immoral, people who had served as male prostitutes, people who had taken advantage of others as homosexual offenders, people who had lied, people who had stolen. And Paul says, look, this is what you were. (laughs) But the thing is, you don't have to kick each other out because here's the other truth that has to go along with it. Verse 11, chapter 6, he says, but you were washed. You, church in Corinth, were sanctified. You, this is an important word, you were justified, which means you were judged not guilty in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now what if we, what if Bethlehem, what if your home church could be a church that was made up of people like that? People who at one time had identified themselves and celebrated things that God called a sin. People that at one time were sexually immoral and they saw nothing wrong with it. People that were embracing a lifestyle of heterosexual adultery and they loved it. People who were inflamed in lust and in homosexual offenses and they didn't care. People who were embracing their sinful nature until, until they came into contact with truth and grace in Jesus. The full measure of truth and grace in Jesus. And at that moment, what they were was no more because they had become something new. So what does that have to do with, with the culture around us? As we, as we attempt to navigate culture, we still have to answer that question. But then how, how do we take this truth and apply it to the way we interact with culture around us? How should we respond when culture or when somebody we know celebrates something that God calls a sin? Let's make it personal. Let's say that you have a friend. Let's call him Timmy. Let's say that Timmy comes up to you and, and he says, you know what, I've, I've, I have these, these desires for same-sex attraction. That's just the way I am. Uh, who are you to say that I should do anything otherwise? So, so let, this is getting really um, applicable here at just as we look at one example of, of one kind of a sin when culture clashes with the way that we know God wants things to be. How should we respond if that's the case? 
Well, the first way you could respond when that's the case, if you're, if you're going to outsiders, well, the first thing that you can't do, you cannot judge. You cannot judge the world. So what does that look like? Well, when, when you re- respond to Timmy, maybe you can tell him, hey, Timmy, why don't, you judge my, why don't you join my church so I can judge you about that? But um, I'm guessing that probably won't work for most of us, so let's go ahead and scratch that one off the list. What I'm going to share with you next are two things that we need to keep both together, and if you take any of them separately or even without explanation, both of these things that I'm going to offer as suggestions for you, um, both of them will not make sense and they'll be incomplete. So just to take it with a grain of salt. The first thing I would emphasize, if culture is challenging me and saying, well, what do you think I should do? Or if I'm in a place where I could potentially make a judgment on those living in culture outside of the church, I would always start with this thought. I would say, I believe everyone needs to make up their own mind. And I'm not implying that every person can just pick what's right and wrong. That's not what I mean. What I mean is this. It is not my place to judge culture. In fact, what that means, and we'll talk more about this in week four, it's not my place to conform the life of an unbeliever to standards that I have as a believer. That is not my place and that is not my goal. I would very much rather have an unbeliever demonstrate he's an unbeliever with his life so at least I can see it and so at least I can do something about it. So I would, I would make it very clear. Step one, I'm not judging you. In fact, I believe everyone should make up their own mind on this matter. But, but I can't leave it at that. The second thing I would say and the second idea I'd bring up is simply this. I would say, you know what? My heart tells me that anything is worth the sacrifice. My heart tells me that anything is worth the sacrifice. And and what I mean by that, I'm not trying to make this an internal thing where it's all about me, but the thing I'm trying to get at, my heart has been transformed by Jesus Christ and by his resurrection. And I want to be able to share that with them. My heart tells me that anything is worth the sacrifice. And I would really want to bring up sacrifice because I think 90% of the time, if culture approaches a Christian and they say, well, who are you to judge? Who are you to judge? The thing that really hurts that person or the thing that is really slowing them down is they recognize if they would, ha- if they would follow Jesus, they would have to make a big sacrifice. And let's just take Timmy's example. He says, well, I have same-sex attraction. And, you know, who, who are you to say that I can't indulge in that? Do you, have you ever stopped just to, for a moment to think about the sacrifice Timmy would have to make if he were to follow Jesus? For heterosexual young men and women, we can always tell them, you know, hold off on sex, don't have sex until you're married, your marriage will be better, all these things. But in reality, there's a reward in them for that. There's the reward of a better marriage. There's a reward of better relationships all across the the, the scale. There's so many rewards in it for heterosexual individuals if they would wait for marriage. But there is no reward for those who have same-sex attraction. There is nothing for them to look forward to. If they would follow Jesus, then they would basically deny themselves of any intimate relationship for their entire life. And maybe that's why God is so clear that we are not to judge the world because we don't have the foundation that they do or they don't have the foundation that we do. Our foundation is based on the truth that we know God 
sacrificed everything for us. And as I think about his great sacrifice and what it means for me, my heart tells me that anything is worth the sacrifice to stay with him. Now, as we go through this series, there's going to be other things that we bring up, and it's going to be a great time as, as we continue to, to talk more and learn more. So I encourage you, if you can, come back next week or listen online again. It was great to have you here, and let me send you off with a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, as we look at the many difficulties that come with navigating culture in today's climate, this is un, uncharted territory for many Christians in this country. So as we approach culture... Let it be so with an open, loving heart, knowing that the standards we hold ourselves to as Christians are based on knowing who you are. So give us patience that we would first extend love, first address this world not with making them conform to the way we think, but maybe seeing things from their perspective so that we can better administer the gospel, which alone can change and transform their lives. So give all of the people listening to this message an extra measure of faith. Give us extra wisdom and discernment so that we can bring truth and love to this hurting world. In Jesus' name, amen.